0: Hey, everybody, Brendan here. Before we get started, a couple of very quick things. Rico, go. All right. Uh, first of all, on this holiday weekend, we are sure many of you are road tripping or camping or Everest climbing, Mm -hmm. whatever you do. So it's a perfect time to check out last week's special episode called Look Up and Listen. That's right. This one's a big departure for us. It's meant to be listened to
1: outside, preferably under the stars. That's right. Now, if you've heard it already, please tell your friends to give it a try. And if you haven't, you're in for a strange (laughs) audio trip through nature with Neil deGrasse
0: Tyson, Feist. Yes, Nick Offerman, Fleet Foxes, and tons of other surprise guests. It's a lot of fun, and it's a great excuse to chill outdoors for an hour. All right, item two... Today is the
1: last day of June, which means it's also the last day of our giving campaign. Yes. The long and short of it is this podcast gets great support from our sponsors, as you know, but that doesn't come close to covering our cost,
0: and that's where you come in. That's right. If DPD has made your days a little richer, or it's made dishwashing or treadmill running a little less of a nightmare, Mm. please consider supporting the show. As a bonus, you will get custom summertime music playlists from Brendan and me. They are the perfect soundtrack for a summer road trip.
1: Or for a summer dinner party. or Uh, I read the instructions differently than you did. I did a road trip. It doesn't matter how much you contribute, everyone. Just head to dinnerpartydownload.org slash donate and please give what you can.
0: Thanks in advance, folks. It is a challenging time to be creating public programming and we couldn't do it without you. Now, here's your icebreaker.
2: Hey, I have a funny little joke for you. Uh, What does a horse from the valley eat? What? Hey!
0: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, And from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, an audio atlas of the week's best culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. You
1: just got a joke from cook and author Samin Nosrat. That'll help break the ice. Later, she'll answer your etiquette questions. Plus, we'll get into the ring with actor Alison Brie. The star of the new Netflix show Glow talks about going from mad men
0: to body slamming women. Also, coming up, musician Beth Ditto of punk band The Gossip shares a playlist. We got our Piet Mondry on. Mm. And the great character actor Giancarlo Esposito talks about his work in Do the Right Thing and Better Call Saul. That's all in one show, folks.
1: But first, as at any party, we begin with small talk.
0: All week long, you've heard these headlines.
3: President Trump's subordinates find themselves defending their boss for today's tweets. Senate
4: Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is delaying the vote this week on a Senate health care bill.
3: The Supreme Court has acted on President Trump's travel ban.
0: And now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Lauren Ober. She is host of The Big Listen. That is an NPR show about podcasts. Lauren, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this week?
5: Okay, well, there was a big election in Rabbit Hash, Kentucky, which is close to Cincinnati, Hmm. they elected a mayor, but the mayor is a pit bull. (laughs) (laughs) Like, literally? Like, it is actually a three-year-old rescue pit bull because the town has a history since 1998 of electing canine mayors.
0: That doesn't seem great for the town if their mayor is (laughs) a dog. Hold on, hold
5: on, hold on. Yes, it is because dogs are wonderful and amazing. But Rabbit Hash has 315 people. So they were like, we don't actually really need like a human mayor, but it would be nice to have Uh... a ceremonial mayor. And wouldn't it be fun (laughs) if we just started having dogs as mayors? And they recently (sighs) elected their fourth canine mayor, who goes by the name of Bryneth Paltrow, P-A-W. Yeah, Ram- oh, we get Paul it. Paltrow <laughs> and and <laughs> Breenith ran on a platform of peace, love, and understanding. Oh. I'm
1: sure she must be really <laughs> difficult to bribe because I find dogs generally, you know, they're not really friendly or won't do things for you. If you just give them I mean, a snossage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
5: if you just put peanut butter on a spoon, like that dog will, do, your... will do whatever you want, whatever shady business you want, <laughs> yeah. that dog will do. Well. So
0: how are these dogs elected? Are there, are there multiple candidates? Do they have a debate?
5: Yes. Okay. Bryneth Paltrow ran against Bourbon and Lady Stone and apparently you vote vote by donating money and the dog that basically raises the most wins but good news in an unprecedented move the rabbit hash historical society which basically organizes this okay. um, did give cabinet level positions <laughs> to uh, oh. the runners up so they are not left out of politics in rabbit hash kentucky
0: nice everybody wins every doggy wins Larnover, <laughs> thanks for the small talk
5: it is absolutely my pleasure thanks guys
0: and now time for
1: cocktails This is the part of the show where we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's
0: our semi world famous history lesson with booze.
1: And we're going to start with the history part. This week, back in 1979, a genre of pop music went up in flames.
0: Michelle Philippi tells the tale
3: Steve Dahl hated disco music. With good reason, he'd been a DJ at a Chicago rock station. But when it switched to a disco format, they fired him. Picked up by a competing station, Dahl launched a vendetta against disco. He urged listeners to join what he called the Insane Coho Lips Anti-Disco Army. He recorded an anti-disco novelty song that was a nationwide hit. And then, in 1979, he announced Disco Demolition Night. Between games of a baseball doubleheader at Comiskey Park he would blow up a crate of disco records. 30,000 people were expected at Comiskey. More like 90,000 showed up. A haze of pot smoke hung in the air as attendees flung disco albums like frisbees. And when Dahl finally blew up the records, crowd went off, too.
1: There are now, I'd say, 10,000 people on that field, Bill, without any question. Look what's happening out they got the, the batting cage, they're running it around the outfield. Some of
0: these records are being thrown high in the air and they're going to strike people on top of the head. And that's why I'm a little bit leery up here myself.
3: No one was seriously hurt, but home base was stolen. Literally. The Chicago White Sox had to forfeit the night's second game. That hasn't happened in the American League since. And as for disco, three years later, it had mostly fallen off the charts.
1: So that was the history lesson. Now for a drink to go along with it, I am on the line with Nandini Count of Cindy's in Chicago, where this disco demolition happened. Nandini, what cocktail did this story inspire you to make?
6: Well, I couldn't help but think that I should make a drink that reminded me of a disco inferno. So yes. I have prepared a shot on fire.
1: Okay. Well, tell me what's in it and what, what we do with it once we put what's in it in it.
6: <laughs> well, basically, you're going to want a bunch of shot glasses because you don't want to drink alone. Okay. We're going to use Goldschlager, which is an 84 proof cinnamon liquor that has real flakes of gold in it. Yes, and So it kind of at least looks like a disco ball.
1: And also kind of like the tacky clothing, the sequin kind of clothing of the 70s. So Totally.
6: So um, I shook up the bottle a little bit just to get most of the flakes of gold towards the top. And um, you're just going to do equal parts gold Schlager, and then uh, Del Magay's Monero Mezcal, which is 98
1: proof. So Mezcal is kind of like a smokier kind of tequila. Mm-hmm.
6: And a lot of tequilas and Mezcal kind of play off flavor of cinnamon well, and you'll notice that some of them have cinnamon notes in it. So okay. I mostly used it because of that.
1: I was going to say, because when I think of mezcal, I think of nights around the campfire or just exactly. kind of, you know, out in the desert, sipping, quietly looking at the stars. I don't think of maniacs running around a baseball stadium burning it's records.
6: True. It's You know, I picked <laughs> it because I like mezcal pretty much. Okay. All right. <laughs> so you want to do equal parts mezcal and Goldschlager, and then mm-hmm. using either a long match or a torch You light it on fire. (laughs) Then you, this is the fun part too. So once you get the flame going on your shots, sprinkle cinnamon on it and it sparkles like a sparkler because cinnamon ignites in fire. Yeah, you blow it out and then you shoot it.
1: And then your life gets demolished a little bit. And then you
6: smash (laughs) the glass.
1: All right. Did you hear that? If you want to get to Cindy's in Chicago, you're welcome to smash the glass, (laughs) overturn chairs. I'm sure they would love that. Nandini Cound. you can find her behind the bar at Cindy's in Chicago, assuming it's still standing.
0: That's right. And folks, if you're looking for a less destructive way to spend your free time, may we suggest subscribing to our podcast. That's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen digitally.
1: All right, and after that savory cocktail, we need some sweet
0: music to wash it down. That's right. And here to play DJ is singer and feminist icon Beth Ditto. For seven years, she fronted the celebrated indie rock band Gossip with critics comparing her soul punk vocals to Janis Joplin's. And she recently debuted her first solo album. It is called Fake Sugar.
1: Here she is with the playlist and to declare the proper way to serve potatoes.
7: Hello, everybody. My name is Beth Ditto, and you are listening to my dinner party soundtrack. And the dinner party that we're going to be having tonight is just your regular run-of-the-mill potluck. There are going to be some vegetarians and vegans. If you could be sensitive to that, that'd be incredible. Thank you. This is my delicious dinner party soundtrack, my DPS. So the first song we're going to listen to today, I think, is the perfect setting for relaxation. It is called um, I've Been Thinking About by Handsome Boy Modeling School featuring Cat Power. Be
1: my boy.
7: usually would associate Cat Power with singer-songwriter, indie rock. You don't really usually hear her in thick like electronic music or hip-hop. And it kind of goes to show that she's so versatile. She's very timeless. Like, I feel like her records could be made yesterday. Diamonds, candy bills, one million dollar bills. You can't try but you can't buy me, by me. You know what's happening at this dinner party right now? I'm a little bit mad because two people bought mashed potatoes, but I'm not kidding you, nobody brought gravy. Get out of here with that. It's like, I brought grits, but no salt or cheese or sugar. You're like, oh good, so we just have some white paste. Great. That's okay because I got some Weiler's bouillon cubes and I'm just about to mix that up with some flour and some butter and we're gonna make a little bit of a roux and we're just gonna do some impromptu gravy and that's gonna be fine. I'm not mad at anybody. I just think it was a little bit irresponsible and inconsiderate. The next song that we have is a delicious little tune. This is Nina Simone covering Suzanne, written by Leonard Cohen, of course. Suzanne takes you down to a place by the river. Nina Simone is very special for me. I think she's just special anyway. The first time I heard her, I think that was listening to Four Women, yeah? And actually, it was my wife now who I was listening to it with. It just blew my mind.
5: Oh, you touched her perfectly.
7: Body with your mind, yeah. There is no bad cover of this song and I don't think Nina Simone has ever done a bad cover like she could cover anything and make it sound so sophisticated and so rich and on the surface it's deceptively simple and then when you listen to it it's moving and complicated she's on another level I think that other musicians just they weren't <laughs> Let's see here while I'm getting this a cooking and a going, which is ridiculous, because now that I look at it, the dinner party's almost over, and I'm finally making this gravy. Thanks for nothing to the two mashed potato folks. But that's okay. I'm going to put this song on for you now. It's called um, After Hours by Velvet Underground's Mo Tucker, and I don't think there's any better way for people to get the hint.
0: One, two, three. If you close the door...
3: The night could last forever.
7: The drinks are being served. The dessert is coming out. So just take a listen and be entranced by her sweet little voice.
3: All the people are dancing and they're having such fun. I wish it could happen to me. It's a
7: Velvet Underground song that Mo Tucker did, which is cute because she was the drummer. It's very charming, but also because Mo Tucker was such a cool badass. One of her... I think there's, like, something that she says that's roughly, like, I hated all that peace and love sh-. When she was talking about the hippie movement, you would never know that she actually thinks that way with how sweet and innocent this song sounds.
3: You're my very special one. But
4: if you close the door, i never have
3: to see the day again.
7: I think this song is really special to me. I remember... Because I wasn't that hip in high school, so I discovered a lot of things in my twenties and touring and like going on tour with different bands. And sometimes you'd switch mix CDs, so I remember this song was on somebody's mix and just being like, "This is the original Twee." Well this song is really important to me because it makes me think. You know what? Twee has a place, and for so long I reeled against it. When I heard this song, I was like, "You know what?" Twi in its truest, purest form is actually incredible and to me this is the godfather of tweet
3: i never have to see the day again
7: Now it's dessert time and um, since it's dessert don't worry about it guilt free, am I right ladies? It is sugar free and this song is by yours truly Dare I Cringe It is called Fake Sugar and it's from the record that I just made I get so sick and tired Feeling sick and tired It's a song that is heavily inspired by Paul Simon and really pretty, jangly guitars. I hope you enjoy it. And I also hope that if you brought a dish, take it with you. Because I'm going to take it to Goodwill in one week. Because that's on you. That's on you.
0: Dinner Party soundtrack from Beth Ditto. Her new solo album is called Fake Sugar, and it came out this week. All right, and people, don't you leave this party. Coming up, Samin Nosrat, best-selling author of the new cookbook Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, answers your etiquette questions. And actor Alison Brie talks about what it's like to be slammed to the mat in her new Netflix series, Glow.
7: Thank
8: you. I cried.
1: She's fine. You can find out for yourself when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the
0: culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Newham. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, cook and author Samin Nosrat tells us how being polite drove her into therapy. And we learn about the hardest partying artist of the early 20th century, Mondrian. Mm. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All
1: right, and this week it's actor Alison Bree. She played Pete Campbell's long suffering wife, Trudy, on the hit drama Mad Men, and straight laced Annie Edison on the cult sitcom Community. But this month, she takes on a very different starring role in the Netflix series
0: Glow. That's right. Brie plays Ruth Wilder, a struggling actress in the 80s who joins an all women's pro wrestling league. In this clip, she auditions before the league's sleazy director, played by Mark Marin. Ruth Wilder. Looks like you.
8: Yeah, it's a headshot.
4: Oh, Strindberg. Who the f*** Who is that?
8: Oh, it's a, it's I'm a kidding. Playwright. I know who
4: Strindberg is. I'm not an idiot. So what are you, like a,
5: Like a real actor? Yeah.
8: I've done a bunch of plays in Omaha. at a little spot called the Blue Barn Theater. Mm. I did a film a few years back. I've also done extensive mask work and clowning workshops. How much acting will there be on this show?
6: As opposed
1: to
8: what? Hair pulling.
1: Spoiler alert, Ruth gets the part and becomes a Russian villain in the ring. When we spoke, I told Allison I'd read this was her dream role. True?
8: Oh, absolutely. Yes, you may have read it anywhere I've spoken (laughs) aloud. It was a total dream job. Why? Well, it just checked every box. If I was thinking about the kind of work I wanted to do, whether it was in TV or film, it's a comedy, it's a period Piece. It has you know elements of drama. The characters have a lot of depth. The writing has a lot of nuance. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, we get to wrestle. It's like <laughs> it's like the action movie I've always wanted to do. While we were shooting it, I kept being like, "This is my action movie. This is my superhero moment."
1: Uh-huh. Instead of waiting to be in the Expendables franchise, which I'm sure would have you.
8: Oh, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I was. I figured I would also do that. Yes,
1: but this is an early foray into the action genre.
8: Yeah. So. That by the time I do Expendables 10, people are like, oh, yeah, this makes sense because she was like a wrestler way back when. That's right.
1: She was in Glow. Well, did you have to body slam the casting director? How did it work? No, oh, I okay. did
8: not. But I did wear spandexy kind of workout clothes and right. I wore no makeup because I thought they, – they the impression I was getting was that they thought I was not – Edgy enough, or I was like a little too polished. I think, based on seeing me as Annie and Trudy, um, yeah. So I really wore no makeup and had my hair back in a bun and just was in tight workout clothes. And I did, and I had to do like a brief little sort of wrestling character improv moment that we got to do. And so anyway, I I did that. Well,
1: congratulations for getting the part. Thank
8: you. I cried.
1: So one of the interesting things about the show is that there are two types of acting going on. Definitely. There's your character, Ruth, who is this well-written, complicated protagonist in the modern kind of cable tradition. Yeah. And then there's her wrestling persona, which is just this over-the-top villain battling a hero in this kind of very simplistic old-world style. As yes. an actor, do you prefer one of those modes over the other?
8: I mean, you really hit the nail on the head in terms of what was so fun about working on this show. It's like the actor's dream of getting to exercise both muscles, mm-hmm. you know, that, that teeny tiny muscle of, of, of hitting all that nuance and, and, you know, something that to me is very reminiscent of working on Mad Men, mm-hmm. where it's all about what's not being said and what's between, you're reading between the lines. And then you get to get in the ring and it really reminds me of theater school, kind of. You know, it's like the 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 most uh, extreme stage you could be on, and you're fueled by people booing yeah. at you or cheering <laughs> for you. In my case, booing yes. <laughs> It's usually booing. we will neuter all your pet dogs and fill your swimming pools with borscht! I think the other dynamic to that, which is cool and interesting... And, and was so fun to play with, was that when we're in the ring, on the one hand, it is this huge black and white thing, good versus evil, and, you know, then uh, there's a layer underneath that that's like, well, now we've worked on these moves, our characters are just learning how to be these wrestling characters, at what stage of that are they in, and then there's a deeper le- level of, of oh my gosh, these characters have a real... yeah complicated relationship but a real human connection and in the ring is the only place where they can actually look each other in the eye and touch each is, other and, and be close it's
1: it's a brilliant feat of writing mm-hmm. it is. <laughs> I don't know if brilliant <laughs> might be too strong but it's really cool
8: I don't think it's too strong
1: it's hard to watch this and not kind of wonder about the parallels this has with Mad Men they're, they're both period dramas uh, mm-hmm. they both have ensemble casts you obviously have a much bigger role in this one but uh, yeah. What were some of the other differences about making the show?
8: Well, to start out, you know, Mad Men was primarily a drama. Mm. And this is primarily a comedy. So I think that just in tone, the tone on set couldn't have been more different. Um, and I wasn't, you know, I would pop into Mad Men and I would do a day when I yeah. worked on an episode. So I'm not, you know, the one to tell you like exactly what it was like on set all day, every day. Yeah. Um, But for me, when I was there, it was very focused. And, you know, everyone is jovial and sweet, but you were really focused on the work. And and on GLOW, it just was so loud. All the women, we were very rambunctious. Mm. We would often just get in the ring and start stretching or start practicing moves. It was just like (laughs) the physical aspect of the show was present all the time. Yeah. Also, this is a show... That's run by women. Uh, Liz Flayhive and Carly Mensch created the show. They EP the show. They write. We had an all-female writers room, save one mm-hmm. one guy. Uh, have more than half the episodes were directed by women.
1: Most of the cast.
8: Yeah, uh, all of the cast except for Mark Marin and Chris Lowell. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: how does that, that? How does that change? Yeah.
8: It. it was very cool. It was very different. And and this is not to single out Mad Men. I would say it was very different from any other job I've worked on in that respect. Everyone just felt so comfortable and free. It sounds so cliche to use the word safe. as like a safe environment, but it's so seldom. I don't know that it had even really occurred to me how much women and and actresses are are so constantly under the male gaze mm-hmm. i mean especially in this profession even when it's not super obviously in your face it it is ever present, and Mm -hmm. it was not present here. There was never a moment where we were being sexualized Mm. in any way. And it was like women ran the set. I've never felt more comfortable on a set or more confident or more like myself. Mm. Able to kind of... It was just very freeing. The
1: director Paul Feig came by a couple weeks ago and he writes primarily mm. female led movies these days it's
8: familiar with the <laughs> the female yeah. run set
1: and he talked about how as a male director he often relies mm. on his female colleagues to help kind of create better performances and it sounds like glow cut the middleman out in some sense mm-hmm. and it, and it opened up your performances
8: absolutely because you know again everybody just felt safe and empowered i think and and emboldened yeah. to Put themselves out there, and we and we. It was important because we were putting ourselves out there in every way you could imagine, physically and emotionally, and and all that stuff. G-
1: getting back to the Mad Men parallels for a second, Glow does feature a reunion between you and Rich Summer, aka Harry Crane. <laughs> uh, and without spoiling yes. it, I'll just say Mad Men <laughs> fans should tune in for uh, it. I
8: think it's the reunion that all Mad Men fans have been waiting for.
1: Uh, but they should also. <laughs> be warned frankly i'm still a little rattled from witnessing it
8: i'm glad i'm glad that we could traumatize you in a small way right out of the gate
1: Alison Bree, her new show is called GLOW. That stands for Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling, by the way, mm-hmm. which was a real organization. Of course. You can catch that show on Netflix
0: now. And folks, if you subscribe to our podcast, you will find a bonus episode featuring more of that conversation, including Allison trying to convince Brendan that giraffes really do exist. I still don't believe it. Okay. Go sign up for the Dinner Party download on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen digitally. Have you ever seen one?
1: All right, and now we go from wrestling to giraffes to modern art. That's right. We got the low and the
0: highbrow and everything in between. Oh, highbrow. Mm. Oh, I mm-hmm. hadn't thought of it. So uh, over in the Dutch city of The Hague is a beautiful museum. It's called the Jementa Museum, which has the world's largest collection of paintings by Piet Mondrian. A.K.A. the guy who painted the squares that is, with the primary colors, right? That is correct. Actually, he started in the Netherlands doing landscapes. Mm-hmm. Then he moved to Paris and he blew everyone's mind with those famous paintings of the black lines and the squares. This month, for the first time ever, the Humenta Museum put all their Mondrians on display. So on a recent trip over there, I spoke to their director, Benno Temple, who told me there's way more to this artist
9: than meets the eye. He influenced a lot of artists, but I think what is more important, if you came in the 20s to Paris and you were interested in art, there was only one place that you really would love to go, the studio of Mondrian. Not to the studio of Picasso or whatever, Mondrian. Why? Why him instead of Picasso? Well, his studio was unbelievable you stepped into another world through a very small door you entered his studio and the walls were painted as are his paintings so you know these famous paintings we all know we can dream of almost red yellow and blue squares and lines in this sense he decorated the walls of his studio so it was unbelievable if you entered that you came into a world that didn't exist anywhere else Especially at that time, there was no kind of that geometric modernism, I guess. There was abstraction in art, but it was never put onto the walls of a building. So for people entering that space, it was unbelievable. And a lot of American collectors, American artists and American museum curators and directors wanted to be invited or tried to get an invitation to Mondrian's studio. But if you came to a studio, you had to take him out. He loved dancing, he loved a good meal. And you had to be careful, you had to look after your wife because if, if you were not looking after your wife, within a, in a second he was dancing with her on the dance floor. This man knew how to party. Now,
0: how, does that, how do we see that in his work? Because his work, I think if you ask most people, you'd think that it's the most rigid, the most simple. He uses only three colors and black lines. That's it, on a white background.
9: Well, I think it comes from the same... You might say sensitivity that uh, you can find in musicians, in composers. To me, Mondrian is always the best composer of the 20th century. In art, he painted many paintings with his red, yellow, and blue, and none of them is boring. You can look at them for ages. It's it's like a music piece. It's about a composition. It's about movement. It's about rhythm. And I think that's one of the reasons why he loved so much jazz music and why he loved to dance. When he came to New York, he was already an elderly man. Then he was dancing every night with a number of uh, young women. One of them was Lee Kressner, who turned out to be the wife of Jackson Pollock later. Oh, that's right. And that says something about the kind of guy he was. He he really loved this rhythm, this this movement, and in a sense, you can feel that in his paintings. Um, let's talk a little bit about the technique that he used. Because, again,
0: what seems very simple is not actually very simple. Well, I think that's a very clever remark.
9: And um, Thank you. <laughs> you could say the, th- the same for Rotko. If this was only plain, flat color, then it was boring. But the good thing about Rotko, about Mondrian, is that these painters paint with a brush. If you apply a brush stroke from left to right or vertical, from top to bottom, it starts to reflect light. And the way you apply the brushstrokes has an influence on how the light is reflected. That's what makes these paintings alive. That's what makes them shine, makes them quiver, makes them dance in a way. And I think that's the brilliance. But there's another thing that's very remarkable. If I would give you a pencil and say, okay, draw a line, immediately you would see a foreground and a background. And Mondrian is one of the, few maybe the only artist i know that draws lines and there's no foreground no background that's magic how so because the logical thing of our human brain connected to our eyes is that we start to see depth in a drawing or a painting as soon as there is a line you see depth and mondrian somehow had the ability to bring to a, a, a picture plane a line and a square and still it's in the same level it's dimensional if you can achieve that as a as an artist then you do something which is almost impossible let's also talk about the lines by the way this blew my
0: mind he never used rulers is my understanding but you look at these paintings and the every line
9: is parallel to another line how did that even work well that's why i call him the best composer of the 20th century a lot of things ...in his abstract paintings were done by intuition. Paintings were painted lying flat on a table. So he was walking around these relatively small paintings... ...and he was thinking and he was applying paint to the painting. Sometimes he was taking it off again, overpainting it... ...and he was searching for the right harmony, the right balance or disbalance. So it had to do with sensitivity, with feeling... ...and I think that was what makes his paintings so brilliant... It's very hard to copy a a Monrian because you think it's so easy. But in the end, it has to do with feeling. It has to do with sensitivity. It's damn difficult. (laughs) How did he even do that, though? How
0: did he even get a straight line without using a ruler?
9: Well, if you look very closely, you see that it was not always completely straight. Uh, All his paintings are somehow imperfect. And I think that's also important because if it was perfect, then it would become a dead painting. It becomes design. In Mondrian's paintings, you always have the feeling that it is made by a human being. What to you is the thing about this artist that when you were researching him most surprised you? Well, you know, during the Second World War, many artists fled from Europe to America. And many were homesick, were longing for the old world. Mondrian loved everything in America, in New York. He loved to be there. He loved that it was a completely new way of life. And I think that brings us the essence of, of his work, that every time he was prepared to innovate himself, to change everything. I mean, the first time he leaves for Paris, he's almost 40. He's one of the most renowned artists of the Netherlands. And he decides to begin again, more or less, because in Paris nobody knew him. But he does it uh, without any hesitation. Even in hairdo, uh, he cut off his beard or he starts wearing a different hairdo or whatever. Every time he decides to leave everything behind, to start over in a sense again. He was fearless. And that says something about how beautiful and brilliant his his, work is.
0: Benno Temple, director of the Jumenta Museum in The Hague, their exhibit, The Discovery of Mondrian, is on display through September 24th.
1: All right, everybody, we're going to take a quick break, but coming up, actor John Carlo Esposito explains how he gets into a murderous mindset on Better Call Saul. Yikes. And food writer Samin Rot dares to go where no etiquette coach has gone before.
0: Am I going to get sued, you guys? Not our problem. That and more when the dinner party download continues.
1: Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your
0: weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galeano. In a few minutes, we talk to the owner of the Los Pollos Hermanos Chicken Empire. Mm. That'd be character actor extraordinaire Giancarlo Esposito. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson.
1: Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this time is celebrated chef and cooking teacher Samin Nosrat. Her first ever fine dining meal was at the famed restaurant Chez Panisse in Berkeley, and almost immediately thereafter, Samin dropped everything to work there. Mm. She went on to spend a decade absorbing everything she could at Panisse and other eateries that led her to a whole new way of thinking about cooking and teaching it to others. She calls the method salt, fat, acid, heat, which is also the name of her new quasi-cookbook. And Samin...
0: Welcome.
2: Oh, thanks for having me, you guys. Thank
0: you for joining us. Let's talk about this manual. It's normally a cooking manual is built around recipes, but recipes are kind of secondary here.
2: Well, it's sort of a, the manifesto of my cooking philosophy, which I came to after working at Chez Panisse for a few years and trying to make sense of what we were doing because the menu there changes every day. Mm-hmm. They never referred to cookbooks or um, recipes or anything. And I came there knowing nothing. And eventually I saw this pattern and I realized... Mm-hmm. Oh wow! No matter what food we're making, there's sort of these four elements that are always at the foundation of whatever we make. It's about knowing how to use salt and fat and acid and heat and control these four things. And I turned it into a book.
1: If you had to write an abridged version of this book that contained only one of the four elements, uh-huh. uh huh. What is your favorite element at the moment and why?
2: Oh, for sure right now my favorite is acid. Mm. Okay. And I think it's because, I, well, my family's from Iran, and so our palates skew toward the acidic really intensely. So, like
0: vinegar, wine. Yeah,
2: fermented things, a lot of yogurt and cheese and pickles. And, like, we have um, fruit leathers, but all of our fruit leathers are extraordinarily sour. <laughs> to me, <laughs> food is really not complete until it makes you have, like, a little tang experience.
1: So we're going to get to our listeners' etiquette questions in a second. But before we start, I wanted to ask you a question, because before we were taping, you mentioned this Persian etiquette concept called, and I may be mispronouncing it tarof
2: tarof tarof i'm so glad you brought it up cuz i was going to bring it up <laughs> good can yeah can you explain the basics of it and <laughs> yeah so it's um it's at the base of all iranian interaction essentially is tarof which is so messed up you guys like it's i'm in deep <laughs> deep like amounts of therapy because of tarof <laughs> <laughs> but so the concept is basically always offering anything to your guests if anybody shows up the rule is you must be completely Completely generous and open, and share everything that you have with them. Um, mm-hmm. If someone comes to your house, you invite them in, even if like you don't have anything ready, and you'll make many dishes and share it with them. You know, the first time I went to Iran, I was 14 years old, and I I had grown up pretty like pretty well trained in it, but maybe not with all of the nuance. And we went like deep into the mountains and met some very extended family. And I had this cousin who was wearing like a, you know, distant cousin who was wearing a really beautiful bracelet. And I said, wow, your bracelet is so beautiful. And she took it off and had to give it to me. Like that was the rule dictated. And I had no idea. I was so embarrassed. I didn't know what to do. And, you know, these were like really poor people. So I was like, what do I do? It was very like traumatic. But um... too bad
1: she didn't like anything you were wearing.
2: (laughs) Oh, I know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I'll take your wedding ring. Like it's a deal. Um, Well, let's see. Maybe you can apply some of those tenets to these questions or maybe. Or maybe can just... this can be an extension of your therapy, and you can throw
1: those aside
0: yeah. yes. and just tell us tell us how you feel. You really feel off the cuff. We'll see. Let's try it. Here's something from Kay in Brooklyn. I love this question. Kay writes, "What do you do when you're cooking with a friend, a family member, or a significant other?" But they're doing it all wrong.
2: Oh, my God, Kay.
0: Yeah. Like not letting baking (laughs) ingredients come to room temperature or allowing enough time for salting the meat. How do you make sure your meal is still delicious without damaging the relationship?
2: Oh, this is intense. And it
0: can happen. That can happen.
2: Oh, I've been that being – I went through a whole phase where I was like the kitchen terrorist and no one would come (laughs) cook with me. Yeah. Oh, no. (laughs) It was pretty intense. And then I went through a whole second phase. This might be the best answer for you, Kay, is – do things behind their back. Oh. I did a lot of salt, adding salt to the pasta water when no one was looking. You know, and then people would sit down to this delicious meal and they'd be like, "Why is this so good?" I was, I, I don't know. Oh.
1: Uh, <laughs> but you can't unsalt something. You can only add salt. What if someone's doing something mm. that is, you know, irreversible?
2: I don't think I. Well, that I think there is a point at which the like. um Everyone's experience of the meal has to come first. I would say there is a point at which, when someone's doing something really wrong or frankly dangerous, those are times when I'll say, Hey, hey, you know, let me just show you. But it is a really tricky thing. Like I had, I was dating a guy once who really didn't want me to be the person who knew more in the kitchen, which was. Hard because I was the person who knew more in the kitchen. <laughs> like, the, why are you dating a chef?
0: <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. But what? Do you, how do you negotiate that when they're like, "No, you're actually this does require four pounds of salt." Sorry.
2: Um. Well, you know, I think one great way if people are really being very difficult, I'll often say, "Hey, let's do a little bit of it both ways, so we can see which one we like better." I'm really a fan of the side by side tasting because also everyone's palate isn't the same. That isn't always an option. You know, if they want to put cold butter in a cake or something, but um, I often will try and offer a compromise where we can have a little bit of things both ways. And then, you know, this is I'm really I don't know why you brought me in as the etiquette expert because I have a horrible temper. Like I <laughs> really I, yeah. I think
1: sometimes that's yeah. what it requires. Don't you think it's a little bit your ego gets entwined Totally.
2: It... And the other thing I'll say is I over the years have really, uh, you know, I'm exaggerating. I'm not going to stab anyone when they come <laughs> to my house, I promise. But um, when I do, <laughs> I do definitely have I have reached a point where for me, cooking and together and eating together is about so much more than how the food tastes. It's about the experience. experience. Experience of coming together around the table. If things aren't perfect, it's fine. It's okay.
1: Okay. I think you have a series of answers there. Ultimate one being do not stab anyone. (laughs) Sure. Oh, and also don't date jerks who think they know more than you. There you go. Okay. Our next question comes from Aaron in Houston, Texas. (laughs) And Aaron writes Is it acceptable yet to directly mock people at restaurants who get carried away with taking pictures of their food instead of, you know, eating it? Parentheses, please say yes. This has gotten way out of hand.
2: Uh, it's so epic, man, you guys. Um, cause that's me. I'm internally mocking all of those people. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I also feel like I don't think it's acceptable. Ultimately, mm-hmm. I think you want to treat people to like, yeah, I don't think it's acceptable to mock.
1: But as a chef, are you proud when people take
2: pictures of your yeah. food
1: or are you just like, hey, that's no, not the point of the food? No.
2: I want them to eat the food because also yeah. as a cook like I rarely take pictures of things in restaurants because you know what most restaurants have real bad lighting real Monster. bad true. and so your instagrams just not going to turn out that good <laughs>
1: Sorry Aaron I was I was trying to help you out but it sounds like no mocking but Sorry Aaron but secretly you're right <laughs>
2: Save it for therapy. <laughs> so that's the secret of being an adult right
1: there. You're right. Just don't say anything. Yep. Okay? And save it for
0: therapy. <laughs> Here is something from Mac. He wrote in via our website. This isn't exactly an etiquette question, but it is germane to the conversation. He writes, so I have found I like the taste of raw beef. Is there a safe way to eat this? I have a trusted meat guy, but I still feel like this is not a good idea.
2: Thanks. Oh, Am I going to get sued, you guys? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs>
1: this is Samin Nosrat answering the question. Yeah. Samin's opinions are
0: wholly her own and not <laughs> those of American
1: public media.
2: <laughs> I definitely think that you can eat your meat raw if you know where it comes from, if you take care of it, if you serve it chilled, if you keep it cold. And maybe if you feed it to some other people first and notice that they don't die. <laughs> well,
0: that's a good, always a good experiment. That's, that's yeah. important <laughs> to conduct.
2: Yeah. You know, but here's,
1: I love this, the subtext of this Mac question is, he found that he likes to taste of raw beef before having any of these questions answered, right? <laughs> yeah. He started eating it on his own and then he still feels like it's not a good idea. <laughs> Therapy is a theme to this conversation, but it sounds like he has a low-level death wish. <laughs>
0: <yeah>. <laughs> so Mac, you have a variety of answers and
1: non-answers in there. Yeah, that's so, true. I mean, Thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave.
2: I really hope they don't listen to me. (laughs) Thanks for having me, you guys. We
0: thank you and your therapist. (laughs) Samin Nosrat, her best-selling book about cooking is called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. This week, she was named a food columnist for the New York Times Magazine. Congratulations,
1: Samin. All right, and folks, if you're not afraid of being psychoanalyzed in public, send (laughs) us your etiquette queries, and we'll find someone to answer them. Just head to
0: dinnerpartydownload.org and hit contact. Or you can dial our hotline and tell us your troubles with your actual voice. The number is 929-335-DNLD. That's (laughs) 929-335-DNLD.
1: Giancarlo Esposito landed his first Broadway role at age eight, and he grew up to become one of the most distinguished character actors in America. He's recently starred in not one, but three TV shows, as the fiery pastor on The Get Down, as the narrator of the Netflix show Dear White People, and of course, as
0: the murderous criminal mastermind Gus Fring on Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. That's right. When we spoke, I first got him reminiscing, though, about his early film roles, starting with Buggin' Out, the perpetually angry activist in Spike Lee's classic Do the Right Thing.
4: Oh, I, I love that piece because it felt very much like a stage play. We took over a block in Brooklyn that had only two residents on the block. We kicked out the crack house and we be, we oh, turned yeah. it into a Hollywood set. It's a little different so now. To me, a little different now. It's mm-hmm. all gentrified now and a very different space. Yeah. But I remember it being a very, very emotional moment in time in the history of New York. And it, it felt like we were doing something that was beyond us, that mm-hmm. was sort of going to be great. And it wasn't like we knew it was going to be interpreted as being great. It was that we were a family doing something that felt really right. Spike is a big basketball fan, football fan. So he, he ran things like a team. And that's great. When you have a team effort, things turn out differently.
0: Another character, also probably lesser known, but one of my favorites of yours, he played an underground do-gooder journalist in Bob Roberts incredibly prescient political satire predicted a lot of modern conservative politics in a way. It seems like a lot of your early work, and still some of it, is it's
4: very politically minded. Was that by choice? Absolutely by choice. For me, I played a character I could really relate to, a character based on a, an actual reporter named Danny Casolaro. Mm-hmm. And I knew I wanted to play someone who was a, uh, a truth speaker, someone who wanted things to be better for the rest of the world. The the hurdle for that character, Bugs Raplin, was that oh, yeah. he had, you know, cerebral it's, palsy. So I went down to the Cerebral Palsy Institute down on 23rd Street and hung out there for a week to get the physical yeah. um, part of my character.
0: That film was shot in my hometown of Pittsburgh, and I actually had a lowly set job on that film. And <laughs> Come
6: on! Yeah, for, cert- wow. for real.
0: And I remember people who worked with you on that set telling me that you remained in character at all times to the point that because the character had these physical problems that you would keep them even between takes. You would walk with a limp. Is that true?
4: Were you your kind of method in that way? Uh, Absolutely. There's a part of my work that believes that when you're in the moment in that time on a film set, that's your time to really lend your whole spirit and energy to the character you're trying to play. I don't know if I'd call it complete method. I guess you could call it that. So that brings me to Gus, though, because here's Gus. This is an
0: intense kind of a sociopath he's this composed criminal mastermind when you're shooting do you remain gus when you're not on camera like do you try to stay in that mindset and if so what does that do to your life
4: (laughs) yeah destroys it (laughs) so I, i have to answer uh yes i stay very quiet on the set you know in film we we shoot a page a day in television, we shoot six or seven pages a day. And I don't want anything to get away from me. I want to remain in a place that's open to channeling the character I'm trying to create. I try to, you know, find the balance and, you know, you have to talk to people on the set. The makeup artist comes to touch you up and and people come to straighten your tie and they touch you without asking and it's all very, you know, intrusive. Um, Something Gus would
0: not like, I don't think. I don't think he'd like
4: people touching him. Not at all. Not at all. So as they come toward me, I'm already adjusting my Tie and putting my shirt tail back in my pants, so they have to touch me less because I <laughs> <laughs> <Interesting>. <laughs> and it puts them off. Yeah, they want to do their job, uh, but I don't want to take on anyone else's energy. Someone fussing with me, talking about how their dog didn't um, mm-hmm. eat their dog food this morning, or they didn't get a chance to take their dog for a walk. I
0: don't want to hear any of that. There's there's something Gus does frequently in the show. He'll be presenting a friendly face to someone, he's seeming like a genial pillar of society, and then he'll turn away and his face turns to just murderous stone, and it is chilling every damn time. What are you doing physically and mentally to make that switch happen? Because it it's like a switch flips on your face, and suddenly
4: you're a different guy. You know, I did a movie... With Spike Lee and Malcolm X, where mm-hmm. I play talmadge Hare, one of the assassins of Malcolm X, and I remember picking up the doll. this little girl drops a doll in the Audubon Ballroom just before we were about to shoot Malcolm x and I remember picking up the doll and giving the girl the doll, and then turning my face and turning to stone. Mm-hmm. It goes to something that I speak about sometimes we wear a lot of masks in our lives, and when we're truly with ourselves, we're different people, and when we're with other people, we're another person so To me, that was the beginning of cultivating the quick switch, allowing the audience to see the real human being behind the words.
0: What are you thinking when that happens, though?
4: Sometimes I'm thinking, I'll kill you (laughs) and I will not shed a tear. Sometimes I'm thinking, just go blank. Gus has been a character that helped me to really hone much of my acting skill within a relaxed position. My yoga practice helped. Breathe deeply. Take your time. You can't control the dialogue, but you can control when you speak. That's a very specific thing to do within a scene with scene partners. You say something, they answer. They say something, I wait to answer. He was angry because those two dealers of yours had just murdered an 11-year-old boy. I heard about it. He should have let me take care of them. Maybe. Then again, maybe he thought it was you who gave the order. Are you asking me
0: if I ordered the murder of a child? We have two questions we ask everyone on the show. The first question is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you?
4: That's the one you're kind of (laughs) tired of. What was it like to work with Brian Cranston? That's probably the, 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 the number one. <laughs> what was it like? What was it like to be on the set of Breaking Bad? Hmm. What was it like? Yeah, I was I there for weeks in... and weeks and weeks. There was a <laughs> yeah. number of
0: different things that happened. That's
4: right. Be specific.
0: All right. So specific questions. And here's our second question, which is, I'm afraid, not super
4: specific. And it's tell us something we don't know. Hmm. Well, mm-hmm. And what comes to me is that broccoli has more vitamin C than orange juice. <laughs> That's and, actually pretty good. Is that that's true? Yeah, I wouldn't tell you if it wasn't. Um, and if I'm wrong, correct me publicly. I'll take the heat.
0: <laughs> Giancarlo Esposito, Better Call Saul, just wrapped its latest season, but you can catch him in the new environmental fable, Oakja. It's on Netflix right now.
1: And that's the Dinner Party download for this week, everybody. This show would not be possible without senior producer Jackson Musker, associate producers James Kim and Krista Ripple, associate digital producer Christina Lopez, intern Emerald Douglas, and engineer Jake Gorski.
0: Also a hearty hello this week to our new listeners on VPR in Vermont. Welcome. Glad to have you on the guest list. Till
6: next time, bon appétit.